a few weeks ago, um, my family and I were on vacation in Pasadena, California. What's up, dude? <laughs> you want to come preach? Amen. Amen. <laughs> so we were in Pasadena, California on vacation, and we wandered into this coffee shop. It was just like any coffee shop that you and I would go into. But there was something very particular about this coffee shop that caught my attention. It caught me off guard. It was the Wi-Fi password. The Wi-Fi password in this coffee shop was this. Cup of grace. It startled me because in these days and age, this day and age, grace is so rare. In our world, you make one mistake or say one wrong thing and you will be canceled. You say one thing that's off and you're deemed a devil. In a world that portrays itself as free and open is in fact just full of law. A law that must be kept at all costs. I feel this law every day in the restaurants I frequent, in the neighborhood I live, and on the internet sites that I go to. Into this life comes this Wi-Fi password. Cup of grace. Grace is rare. And how delightful such a cup sounds in this world that is filled of law. I want that cup of grace. How about you? The truth is, Grace is like a cup of cool water on a hot and dreary day. Grace is something we all need. And this morning, I'm going to make us a cup of grace that in the end, we might drink. The way that I'm going to make this cup of grace is by looking at a grace-filled life. A man named Stephen, whom we just read about. And in his life, his grace-filled life, there are three important lessons of grace that we receive. I want to look at these lessons that we might make this drink and then eventually drink it. Our hearts desperately need this cup of grace. So let's study these three lessons of grace from Stephen's life. The first lesson of grace that we're going to learn from Stephen's life is this. Number one, grace is offensive. Grace is offensive. Right after we're introduced to Stephen, we recognize that he is in hot water with the Jews that he's ministering to. In verse 9, we see that some who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen rose up and disputed with him about what he was doing. And Stephen, who it says was full of grace and power, withstood their disputes to the point that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. At this, the individuals who were opposing him then secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so these men stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen, seizing him, and brought him to the authoritative council and put all around them false witnesses who said things like this. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. Of course, following these accusations, Stephen makes the longest speech in the book of Acts. It's the speech that I did not include. It's the speech that would take 10 minutes for me to just read. It's long. <coughs> I didn't include it in your bulletin, but for the sake of time, let me summarize this speech for you. It is a speech that surveys Israel history, beginning with Abraham, continuing with Joseph, 
and Moses, and then concluding with David, Solomon, and the prophets. And the conclusion of the speech is printed in your bulletin, verse 51 through 53. He concludes the speech like this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Offensive. Which of, you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Of course, upon hearing this, the people who were standing there gnashed their teeth in anger and eventually marched Stephen out to a field and stoned him. We can think that Stephen's harsh language, at least from our eyes, is the reason behind their anger with him. And perhaps it didn't help Stephen. But there's something deeper at play. There's something that's driving their anger. And some of the words that Stephen says, these offensive words, actually give us the reason why they're truly anger. What is at play? Stephen preached such a truth that it challenged the way the Jews used Moses' law. Or God's law. It is Moses' law, God's law, the Ten Commandments, if you want to understand it. It is these laws that have given these people meaning and significance. God's law and their apparent obedience to that law made them feel good about themselves and about how they stood with God. God's law gave them their identity. And Stephen is in their midst and he's saying, you're basing your identity on the wrong thing. You did not keep God's law. It was given to you and you didn't keep it. He's challenging their very hearts. And they hate it. His grace to them, telling them the truth, was so offensive to them that they wanted to have him killed. Why is Stephen being so offensive to these people? The answer, it's the grace of Jesus. Jesus truly reframes the way we view the law of God. It reframes the way these Jews should have been thinking about the law. And I want to I kind of paint this picture for you because it's really important. There's four kind of important characteristics of the way that Jesus reframes the law and what Stephen is trying to teach these Jews. Four different ways. Just real, real quick. We're not going deep in this. But four ways that Jesus reframes the law that Stephen was trying to teach them that they couldn't handle. First, it's this. That obedience to the law is necessary. Like the Jews in this particular case, they knew that the law of God was necessary to be in relationship with God. Stephen was not in their midst trying to abolish the law. No. Obedience to God's law is necessary according to Stephen, according to the Christian faith, and according to the Jews too. He's not trying to abolish the law and change the customs of Moses. No. Obedience to the law is how the Bible says relation with God is possible. But here's the thing. We live in a world that wants to get rid of the law. Live however you want to live. But when you get rid of the law, guess what you're also giving away as well? Grace. This is very important for us to understand. The very nature of grace Drinking this cup of cool water is predicated on the truth of God's law. You get rid of the law, you're getting rid of grace. And Stephen is by no ways trying to get rid of the law. Why? Because the law and obedience to God's law is necessary for everyone. 
So that's the first aspect of Stephen's belief and reframing of the law according to Jesus. The second aspect of this reframing is that obedience to God's law is impossible by humanity. Stephen told the Jews that very true. They based their life on apparent obedience to the law, but the truth is that these religious and law-abiding peoples had not kept it. They had it. Law-abiding is not possible by us in our own strength. The Bible goes even so far to say that we've inherited sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We were born into that sin and can't keep the law. It's not possible. This is what Stephen is telling them, and they can't handle it. But it's the reframing of our law, the law, and understanding it. We can't keep the law. It's impossible, which leads me to the third part about the law and re how Jesus reframes the law. Because we are disobedient to God's law, we deserve God's punishment. We've broken the law, and, and, and we're incapable of keeping it rightly, so we deserve to be punished for our disobedience. The Jews understand this, and Christians understand this. You break the law of God, and you will be punished, save for God's mercy. There's only one way that you can avoid the punishment of breaking God's law. And that leads me to the fourth point. Obedience to the law was accomplished by the righteous one, Jesus, and given to sinners by grace. This is what Stephen is trying to convince these people who think that their law abiding is actually what keeps them in favor of God. No, Stephen is trying to tell them, you didn't do it, but someone did. This Jesus was different than us. Yes, he was human, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He wasn't born into sin like you and me. His heart was not capable of breaking God's law. And his life attests to that fact that he was obedient to God's law all of his life. He knew no sin. That's why Stephen called him the righteous one. But yet, this Jesus died a sinner's death. He went where we were supposed to go. He endured the punishment sinners deserved. Why? So that God's love and his justice might be preserved. The psalmist says righteousness and, 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 and love kiss. It is because of Jesus, his life and death, that sinners like you and me and the Jews that Stephen is talking to, sinners like Stephen can experience the favor and kindness of God. It is only through Jesus who's fulfilled the law. You will hear this in churches all around the world, and you've got to get this in your head. God's love is unconditional. To which I say, ah, it's not unconditional. You know that, right? God's love is always conditioned. And it's conditioned on one thing, obedience to the law. And there is one who has done that. And that's Jesus. This is what Stephen is trying to tell them. It's not your obedience to the law. It's Jesus' obedience to the law. And guess what? It's so offensive. It is so offensive to us. Grace is is offensive to our psyche. It's offensive to our hard work that we put in obeying laws. But grace, before it's amazing, is indeed offensive. And if you've never been offended by the grace of God, then you've never known His grace. Grace is offensive. Stephen is trying to convince these people of that. They don't get it. What about you? 
In the Broadway play of Les Mis, there's a scene where the antagonist, Inspector Javert, has received grace from the protagonist, Jean Valjean. Javert had spent the vast majority of his professional career trying to pin down Jean Valjean for his crimes. He always was looking to capture him and put him back into prison where he thought he belonged. And of course, it led to a lot of trouble for Valjean. But near the end of the story, a great fight breaks out and the police inspector who had carried great authority now finds himself under the authority of Valjean. And Valjean is given a knife to kill him. But rather than doing that, he walks up to Javert and he doesn't cut his throat. He cuts his chains or his rope and he sets him free. Grace is given to Javert but Javert finds that grace incredibly offensive. And this is what Javert sings. Who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have, have me caught in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate. Wipe up the past and watch me clean up slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the dead of a thief. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. If you know the story, you know what Javert ends up doing. He takes his own life. He can't bear to live in a grace-filled world. Because grace is offensive. Friends, grace is offensive to our pride. You know that, right? If we have not come up to God and realized you are God and I am not, you have not encountered his grace. Oh, grace is offensive. And Stephen teaches us that. Before we can receive his grace, we need to be deeply offended. We need our pride challenged. That's what grace does. Yes, a cup of grace is like a cool drink of water in a dry and arid land. It is. But you need to go to that dry and arid land that you might drink it. If we're going to drink it, we have to realize this is one of the ingredients of grace. It's offensive to you and to me. But there's another part of grace that we learn from Stephen. Not only is it offensive, the second lesson that we learn, kind of the second ingredient to this cup of grace is that grace is encouraging. It's offensive, but it's also encouraging. I don't know what it's like to be in a location where everyone is looking at you with a murderous rage. My guess is Stephen felt great terror when their teeth were gnashing. When, when he probably heard them say, let's take this man out of the city and throw stones at him. My guess is his heart was beating a lot faster than yours is beating right now. He was probably incredibly scared. What is happening? What is going on? But something incredible happens in this moment. Scriptures tell us that Stephen became full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of this intense moment, 
Stephen receives grace from God. And then he finds the courage to endure what will be his last moment. It, it literally gave him the courage to go through that horrific moment with grace. What is the last thing? I mean, we didn't read this. The last thing, the last words of Stephen. Do you know what they are? It's not in your bulletin. If you have a Bible, you can see this. The last words of Stephen are this. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He didn't fight their accusations, their false accusations. No, he received it in grace. Now, why is that? The answer to that question is this. He saw something. He saw something that gave him great courage in the midst of that horrific time. He saw a standing Jesus. He saw a standing Jesus. What in the world is this? This is indeed odd to us, but it is incredibly encouraging to him. What is this? Maybe you know a little bit about the Bible, how Mark 16, it talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Or in Hebrews 8, the same sort of language is being used, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But here, Stephen sees him standing at the right hand of God. What is happening? I'll tell you what's happening. He sees Jesus interceding for him on the throne of God. This sort of language and what he sees is deeply connected to a courtroom. And what he sees is Jesus interceding for him. It's like he's seeing Jesus whispering into the Father's ear, he's mine, he's mine. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In seeing a standing Jesus, what Stephen sees is the living Lord interceding for Stephen, saying to God, he's mine. I've paid for his sins. Yes, this is what's encouraging to Stephen. That in the court of man, he's being condemned. But in the courtroom of God, he sees he is forgiven. The writer F.F. Bruce says it's another way. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before the Father. Stephen was convicted and condemned in the court of the Jews, but he deeply understood that he was forgiven in the courtroom of God, and it was this grace that enabled him to have the courage in the face of his adversaries. What is it that made Stephen so courageous? It was the grace of God. I think if you step back from this story a little bit and you look at the story of Acts in and of itself, you see men who had previously been incredibly afraid of the Jews who had killed Jesus, but then in a moment, they become incredibly courageous. They become people who can walk into the very churches where these people are, 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 are going against them and they can proclaim the grace of of God. What is it that gave him that courage? It was God's grace. You're forgiven. You're mine. And no matter what these people say of you, it don't matter. It's what I see of you. Okay, let's go. Friends, 
Do you know that grace? And do you know the freeing nature of that grace? My, my guess is many of us believe it, but we struggle to believe it. And so we're really, we're really reluctant to speak truth to our neighbors or speak the truth of the gospel to our neighbors. We're really reluctant to speak hard things into people's lives because we want to take care of them. Like, okay, like at some point, not speaking the truth is not taking care of them. It's letting them live their lives how they want to live their lives. And so it takes courage to speak truth in love. Yes, in love. It must be done in love. But where are we going to find the courage to do that? Look to the one who is at the right hand of God who's interceding for us. So many of us place our justification in the courtroom of humanity. And we say, judge us. How am I to live? We need to turn that on its head and look to God who is interceding for us. Yes, it is not to be done perfectly. You will not do it perfectly. You will make mistakes. You will, you will butcher things. You might be like Stephen and have the most yeah, crazy language you could ever think about that might get you killed. It might. Who knows if Stephen does it right? I don't know. He got him killed. But he did it. And he found courage to do it from looking to heaven. We have a Savior who is interceding for us right now. So that when we take risks, even if it's we bumble it together and just make a mess of it, he's still interceding for us. We can find courage from the living God who is interceding for us on our behalf at every moment of every day. Find courage from that. Speak the truth in love as Stephen does. Indeed, grace is encouraging. This story teaches us that, that indeed grace is encouraging. It also teaches us that grace is offensive. But there's one final lesson from this story that I think we've got to learn if we're going to drink this cup of cool grace. And that is that grace is transformative. Grace is transformative. When we look at this story from a very worldly perspective, like not even acknowledging the, the reality of God, we would say that without a doubt, Stephen is a failure. He, he failed to convince those in the synagogue that Jesus was Lord and full of grace. In fact, his actions led to his death. Dang, that would have been good to have someone like Stephen who's full of grace and power walking around. He's dead. That ain't good. Right? But from a heavenly perspective, that's just with our earthly ones. From a heavenly perspective, the actions of Stephen are part of a, a profound picture of the transforming nature of grace. In verse 58, after Stephen had been stoned and killed, those who had participated in this event come and lay down their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. It's one line. It's like, it, it's barely in there. You can skip over it in just a second and, and you can just, whatever, it doesn't even think about it. Why are they doing this? They're doing this most likely because Saul is the one who's leading the cause to kill Stephen. If you want to know who's the, who's the ringleader of the gnashing of teeth, it's probably Saul. He's probably the loudest voice in these synagogues opposing Stephen. Now, of course, this is the first time we see Saul in the book of Acts. 
But it's not the last time that we will see Saul. You know, in Acts 7, Saul is this great persecutor of the church. But in Acts 9, a transformation takes place in this man. And what, what once was a great persecutor of the church is radically transformed into the greatest promoter of the church. In a moment, Saul was transformed by grace from persecutor to promoter. You see, in Acts 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus to continue persecuting Christians. And on that road, Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. And rather than killing him, which is probably what we would have done, like, let's get this guy off the street so that the church can thrive, right? Let's get him done. You know, Jesus, that's what you got to do. Just, you know, like, just kill him. But that's not what Jesus does. He blinds him. And he makes Saul humble upon the grace of Jesus. Jesus allows him to live and then shows him the truth. And you want to know what the truth is? that Saul comes to believe, it's quite ironic. Stephen's truth. Now, I have no hard proof that, that, that Saul was deeply impressed by the speech of Stephen. But I think as you study Saul and his teachings and his writings, that Stephen's speech is echoing in his mind his entire life. Over and over and over again. He's just replaying Stephen's speech over and over and over again. Why do I say that? Because when you open up Saul or Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, you read things like this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. What was the last thing Stephen said before he got killed? Not, you know, the last thing in his speech that he said before their teeth gnashed. You have not kept the works of the law. And here is Paul, Saul, transformed by grace, saying the very things that Stephen is proposing. What does this teach us? That there is no one too far from God. That the grace of Jesus can transform the worst person in the world and make them a promoter of the church. My, my imagination, as I put myself in Saul's feet, in the, the journey of his life of grace. It, it almost makes me want to weep because it's hard to believe. How could someone who killed Christians, how could they receive grace? Now, thankfully, we have the heart of Paul right before us. Paul, he writes to his protege, Timothy, and he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
And he says this. And I want us to get this in our head because I think this helps us understand his heart and, and the things that he wrestled with on a daily day basis. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, he says this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What, what is the saying, Paul? What is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. I received grace for this reason. That in me as the foremost, as the worst sinner in the world. What? Paul, you're the worst sinner? Yes. As the worst sinner in the world, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's life, who he was, who he is, is a picture to us of what I'm trying to tell us about grace. It is transformative. I'm telling you, there is simply no one too far from God or stuck in their sin for God to work. God's grace is free and not dependent on what we do or what we don't do. It is simply based on God. Grace is dependent on God. And when God's Grace pervades in your life. You will be transformed and you can't stop it. Hallelujah. And you will be changed. And it will be beautiful. I'll never forget the date when I truly received my first cup of grace. I was in college and if I'm being honest, my life is exactly what my parents wanted. I didn't smoke. I rarely drank or go with girls who do. I was frequent in church and even served in my church's youth group. I even listened to sermons on long car, car rides. Like, what college student listens to sermons on college, on, on drives? Like, this is before podcasts. Little did I know, though, that when I put one of those sermons in, that I would be faced with the offensiveness of grace. I was listening to a sermon on John chapter 9, and this sermon convicted me of the ways that I had based God's love for me on my actions. And in this sermon, I'm realizing, oh boy, all the things that I based my life off of and God's love for me on, on, on not going with girls who do, not drinking, not smoking, going to church, all these things were actually corrupt. And I was faced with the offensiveness of grace. And as I'm driving down the road, I'm starting to weep because I realize, oh, oh my. I'm drinking this cup of grace. And that cup is reminding me that in my power, I have nothing. But at the same time that I'm drinking this offensive cup, I'm reminded of the transforming power of grace. That though I am a sinner, I am still accepted. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And in a moment, I'm transformed. I'm drinking that cup. I'm weeping. And not no longer weeping tears of pity, but tears of joy. How could a God so holy and righteous receive me into his presence? I'm a sinner. It's by his grace. And in that moment, I start to find a little bit of courage to go to my school and speak truth and love. This is what grace did for me. And this is what grace can do for you in a world so void of grace.
Church, this is what we have. The only thing that we have to offer the world that is of any value is the very grace in the cup that Jesus has given to us. Let us receive it and drink deeply. And in drinking deeply, let us find the courage to share that grace with a dying world. A world desperately needs it. Let's drink deeply of the grace of God that's given to us. Let me pray. Jesus, I'm reminded of the song, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And I am completely and utterly amazed at such grace. Why? Perhaps that's not the question of the day. We don't need a why. We just need to receive it. Help us, Lord, to receive this great grace. Grace that is pardoned and cleansed within. Help us, Lord. We need it. Our world needs it. 